0: Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. No, I say, I say to the fans that the fans are the fans, and the fans have the right to have their opinions and to have their reaction. Football, everything. I'm so happy, believe me.
1: So i you know it? Robert
2: Levangolsky. Dream team, dream team. Fire. Swoosh. I am flabbergasted and they're here. I wouldn't even let them on the bush after the match. i got a
0: taxi back to Manchester. <laughs> the only time a uh, tennis ball's ever made me
2: angry. What's viral on Twitter for us tonight is tennis balls. These boys are fucking <laughs> mentality giants. It's unbelievable.
0: This is a great football and college produce players and and play that rubbish. Yeah. In August 2020, yeah, I'm over and that's the decided. I'm
2: angry, I'm angry Tony,
3: I have to be honest with you. Stephen Kenny, we've won it. Oh so go on, go back to Scotland, and get lost. And I'm certainly gonna be a part of that. I'm gonna manage that. I'm gonna make sure we're even better.
0: Hello and welcome to the first 2022 edition of the Treat the Back podcast. After an extended Christmas break, I'm joined this week by Phil Green and Enda Higgins. How are you, lads? How
2: are we doing? Good evening, lads.
0: So, since our last recording, um, not a huge pile has happened. Uh, but Covid has rampaged through football once again. The Christmas period hung on by a trade as City pulled ahead in the title race. The United situation remains relatively interesting since Ralph's arrival. And the African Cup of Nations survived the challenges faced by the pandemic and Europe's general dismissiveness of the tournament to kick off this past weekend. And to talk about that, we'll be joined by Guinean journalist, Auraku Ampofo to talk about the tournament a little bit later on. Um, and lads, I was thinking back on, on Afghans of, of years past, and it holds a bit of um, nostalgic value for me. I mean, back when it was on Eurosport, I remember being so enamored by the you know, January football at like 6 p.m. in the evening with all of these players I'd never heard of. It was literally like, you know, such a different world of football from what I was used to. I was just wondering if you had any similar memories of it.
2: Yeah, per- personally for me, the the standout tournament was uh, 2012 uh, when Zambia won. So I've, I've uh, a, a soft spot for Zambia, I was lucky enough to visit when I was in school. And so I've I kind of always looked out for the results ever since. And um, they were rank outsiders in 2012 and managed to kind of one nil their way all the way to the final, where they uh, turned over that very talented Ivory Coast generation of Drogba, the Touré brothers and so on, uh, on penalties. Uh, so that one stands out for me. It was a real Greece 2004 moment in, in AFCON. And the Copper Bullets uh, did, did themselves proud in uh, 2012.
0: I don't think Drogba ever won it, did he? Or, or did he get over in the line at the? At yeah, the very end? they
3: got they got over the line in twenty fifteen, um, and that with was actually, the manager who won it with <laughs>
2: Zambia. I'm pretty sure.
3: Yeah, exactly. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Torre part of that team as well, so that was probably going to be one of my highlights. Really, considering, I think Drogba still has that down as the best moment of his career ahead of uh, ahead of the Champions League final. So it's incredible, really. But you made a good point earlier about you know just the production value more of Eurosport back in the day, really, when you think about it, um, even with Euro goals and everything like that, they were so far ahead of even what Sky Sports are doing today with the AFCON. And I know some people mentioned it on Twitter that they don't even have a team over there. They're just, they they have no halftime coverage. They just start five minutes before uh, kickoff. And when you think of, you know, I I know Eurosport didn't have a team at that time either, but the quality that they were producing in terms of football coverage uh, was actually light years ahead of... What was to eventually come. Uh, and it's such a big loss, really, that they don't have as much of the football as they used to on Eurosport. Obviously, tennis has taken over a bit and, and some of the other sports as well. Cycling has become uh, a very big factor for them as well. But uh, yeah, I mean, I remember as a kid even trying to figure out one or two players. <laughs> <if> <laughs> it was bizarre, you know, maybe George Way, uh, Taribo West, you know, a couple of those types that we'd seen in Europe at the time. But it just goes to show how much of an impact. Um, the African players have now that every almost every single squad, or every single strong squad, would have you know European-based players, and you know probably the most informed player in the world, obviously In Salah. So, um, they, they've come a long way, and you know we're already seeing a, a lot of players who could play for European countries declare for African countries, which I think is probably the strongest message of all in terms of uh, the opportunities that they see over there and the quality of teammates that they now have.
2: For
0: sure, yeah, and just on your, your point, your sport point, um, you know, back in the early 2000s, you we didn't have Sky Sports at the time, so, you know, when you're tuning in, you, you didn't know what you were going to expect. It was, there was some nights you'd have sumo wrestling, and then you'd have, like, you know, live African Cup of Nations, and it'd be the same commentator covering everything. I mean, he was uh, such a jack of all trades. I can't remember his name now, but, um, yeah, the, the Sky Fair has been very, very disappointing. Like you said, five minutes before kickoff, um, just those kind of rerun highlights at halftime with no uh, no one speaking over them. You d- you think it would have been a good chance to experiment? Um, I don't know. Maybe get some of their younger um, uh, presenters in and, and and kind of get uh, new faces that we're not used to with the Premier League and stuff in and uh, try something new. But it seems like they've just kind of got the bare Afghan package. I think it's the uh, the kind of worldwide fee that they're using, which uh, I suppose a little bit disappointing for uh, for what you're paying.
3: Yeah, BBC have 10 matches as well, so it'll be interesting to see the quality of their production. But yeah, Sky, it's very much half-assed at the moment, unfortunately.
0: We will get on to uh, all the runners and riders with Aurakou in uh, the second part. Um, but four sleds, a little bit of FA Cup action this weekend. Um, to a couple of giant killings. I think we, we might start off with um, with the World's Richest Club uh, coming to uh, the force that is Wessie Houlihan. Uh, against Cambridge there on Saturday field, it's nice to see Wes. Uh, I think he came on uh, towards the end of the game, still pulling the strings and, uh, and still uh, showing everyone that uh, yeah, he's not done just yet.
2: Yeah, I mean, like obviously Cambridge United have sprung up the list of of teams that Irish people have been following since Wes signed for them, and how well he's been taken to by the fans there. But it's it's nice to see Wes finally get the platform he deserves in kind of you know back page coverage. As they, as they topple Newcastle, I know he didn't have loads to do with, with how it actually turned out, but um, it, it is great to see such a cult hero for us still still making a bit of a splash with his teammates. Um, like obviously it's it's fucking hilarious that this big bad Newcastle, uh, with be Trippier, La Liga winner, making his debut with all these players that they're linked to in the first win that are able to buy players losing to Cambridge United is absolutely brilliant and. Like, apologies to any Newcastle fans listening, but it's not going to stop being funny for a long time when they contrive to do stupid things like this uh, and, and and lose. Not undeservedly as well, by the way. I mean, the goal, to me, looked like it was offside. I know Shelby got a touch and is it a different phase of play, whatever. But um, in, in kind of a general run of play, I thought Cambridge gave them plenty. Uh, Newcastle look continue to look pretty miserable. Uh, and that's going to be funny forever, pretty much, as the richest club in the world. Uh, it'll be even funnier if they find themselves down into the championship, but on Saturday was it was Wes and Cambridge's time to shine, which is great as well. A uh, little bit of a, a, a giant killing. I mean, you know, in, in normal standing, Newcastle, an embarrassing third round exit isn't exactly breaking news, but just with the circumstances of where they are in their first window under PIF, uh, it, w- it was pretty great to see uh, score one for the underdogs.
3: Yeah, it was funny because like there was 52,000 there uh, on Saturday. So all these Newcastle fans are waiting for this big moment. And they probably expected it, I suppose, with Trippier starting. And it was quite a strong lineup as well. St. Maximin, Joe Linton, Shelby, Fraser, Longstaff, Murphy. I mean, th- most of those would probably start on a good day for Newcastle. Um, it might be a very different story come the end of January. But they're not linked to anybody too inspiring at the moment. A couple of defenders who have told... Their prospective clubs that they don't really want to move to Newcastle, but they're getting such big, big bids that who knows they might have to. Um, but yeah, I didn't think Newcastle were great. Obviously, the stats, you know, twenty-three shots were kind of deceiving. I felt Cambridge were relatively comfortable overall, um, and I suppose slightly concerning from Maryland' point of view is the lack of minutes Jeff Hendrick is getting at the moment as well. So you'd wonder if, if he he mo- he needs a move away. Um, certainly, when you compare that to the impact that Houlihan is having at his club. And it's interesting that, you know, you you talk about Wes getting the um, recognition that he finally deserves. When he moved to Australia uh, to play for the Newcastle Jets, I thought he'd be phenomenal over there. And he had an awful injury in pre-season. And I remember watching him come back and he looked just an absolute shell of a man. And I thought that would just be the end of his career at that stage. So to have this mini career revival at Cambridge and become such, such a cult hero there is really a phenomenal story. Um, when you think of how long he's been around and, and to come back from such a serious injury in his mid thirties. So it's a really phenomenal story, but not really the, the main story of the day for Newcastle, but, um, I'd be uh, agreeing with Phil heavily on the entertainment value that their recent run of form is providing. And it's tough to kind of see them, you know getting out of this funk at the moment unless you know these they can somehow um get signings over the line I mean you thought Coutinho might have been somebody who they'd be able to convince uh, especially with Barca's need to get him off the books but Villa be- beat them to that uh, and I don't really know where the goals are going to come from and, and saint Maximum is you know starting to look like a pretty frustrated player as well which would be a disaster for them if he was to kind of lose the will to live there. Um, So I think it's going to be a very, very tricky five to six months for them. Um, And there's a few Celtic fans, I'd imagine, who are quite happy that they managed to get Ange (coughs) Postacoglu as opposed to Eddie Howe at this stage.
0: For sure, yeah. After all the uh, over and back, I think he kind of... The way he pulled out towards the end seemed a bit fishy to me. I think he probably wanted to hold out for a a Premier League club. Uh, So it would be... uh, Apologies to Newcastle fans, but it would be a, a pretty funny to see them go down <laughs> at this point. But, I mean, they're probably lucky looking at the table that you know, they are against three other pretty poor sides this season in the Premier League in um, Watford, Burnley and Norwich. So if they do get a couple of signings over the line, uh, you would imagine they'll be able to to, to pull something out of the bag uh, with, with uh, the 18 or 19 games left. Um, other big uh, giant killing of the weekend... Um, Nottingham Forest beating Arsenal late on. Um, and Arsenal had a pretty decent side out. I mean, it wasn't um, packed full of kids like you would expect. I mean, Martinelli, Odegaard, and Saka had been starting every week in the Premier League. Um, I know they did have a, a kind of a, a relatively experienced midfield pairing, um, but still a per, very, very poor fare against Nottingham Forest in the competition that I think, you know, given their history with us uh, and given the kind of backlash. Um, since then, um, something that they hold in, in good stead, uh, having won it, um, I think they've won it a record amount of times. But Arteta definitely feels like he's reading after this one.
2: Yeah, um, like it felt like it was a step back to the battle days uh, from Arsenal, and like just the mood music around it. Like they seem to kind of go from one extreme to the other. Um, at the, like you know, relatively positive against City, notwithstanding how things ended up. And then this, like a complete disaster, nobody looking really interested, no kind of cut and trusted Tavares thing. Um, like they, they just seem to, like it's a, they are a, a work in progress, but there just seems to be a, even kind of a, a lack of, of a consistent thread to pull through their attitude even. Um, from a long way out, it didn't look like they were going to score and it was a matter of whether they were going to concede or whether it might go to extra time and pens, um, which. Uh, which which looked likely for a while, but once Forrest scored, I never really got the sense that Arsenal were going to be able to pull it out. And um, now, listen, the like it's not the worst thing in the world for them to go out to a resurgent Nottingham Forest when Arsenal are focused on trying to get themselves back into a European uh, place at the end of the year. But what it what just what it says about a marker of progress for Arteta. It would have been nice to at least make a little bit of an inroad into the cup. He's obviously won it before with them. It's not going to change the world, but it would mean something, especially if the league form doesn't work out. But like ultimately, he's going to be judged on, on where things finish at the end of the year. But what this looks like is it looks like there's an Arsenal that can function really well against big sides, can function well against some not-so-big Premier League sides as well, but that once you kind of peel back things a little bit, maybe rest a couple of the key individuals, and if the attitude isn't on, then all of a sudden they're ver- they're very much back to, uh, to to kind of a standing starter back to where they were when we thought that they were in real trouble in August. So I think it's more concerning for me in the general sense as to what it might say about Arsenal's attitude. The actual result in losing in, in the third round of the Cup won't be really remembered if they manage to squeak out a top-four finish. might even be forgiven if they get into the Europa League. Um, but just as a marker of progress and where they were going and off, off the back of an encouraging performance against City, from an Arsenal point of view, it has to be uh, disappointing.
3: Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, they had five wins in a row ahead of that City match and, you know, for the first 55, 60 minutes, you know, that was as good as Arsenal can probably play and then all of a sudden they pushed the self-destruct button and I suppose what wasn't surprising really is that this happened against Nottingham Forest. It's that kind of type of fixture you would have looked in the last few seasons, maybe even the past decade, that Arsenal would have and not only would they not win they'd be comfortably outplayed and yesterday kind of felt like that as well I mean no shots on target in 90 minutes is a bit of a disaster for them and that front four in particular were very very strong maybe a bit inexperienced in midfield but the amount of times they gave possession away particularly passing out the back and passing through midfield I was watching a compilation of James Garner's performance today and he's not a defensive midfielder by any stretch of the imagination but the amount of times he was able to kind of read where the pass was going and intercept where an Arsenal player was going to play the ball kind of spoke volumes really as to just how chaotic and sloppy Arsenal were. And there was just no real enthusiasm or drive to their performance for what was, you know, a young enough side on paper, but certainly plenty of experience in there as well. But as Phil said, Odegaard and Saka and Nketiah has a point to prove as well, even though he might be going out on loan um, for the second half of the season. But, I think for Arsenal, there's a big danger here of losing all that momentum that they've built up. And as we've seen with Arsenal, once that starts to happen, um, they can go on a very, very bad run. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how they respond from it. Um, Obviously, Aubameyang being away maybe helps them a little bit in terms of keeping their concentration um, on their league form. Uh, And obviously, Lacazette has been in good form in the last few weeks as well. So um, it'll be interesting to see if they can kind of fix that mindset. But yesterday was really, really poor.
0: Phil, on Liverpool then, surviving an early scare against uh, Shrewsbury to win 4-1 there um, with a pretty rotated side. A couple of uh, players that I wouldn't be hugely familiar with, but um, they did the job, um, especially with the relatively uh, experienced defence. But I suppose the big... Um, talking point coming out of that, and it has been over the past couple of weeks since he, since he's seen a little bit more game time, has been Cueveen Keller. And I mean, from an Irish point of view, we've kind of raved about him for long enough now. Um, He's, you know, obviously competing with Kevin Bezuna for, for the Irish shirt. He, he's had his few cameos at Liverpool, but the general kind of opinion of him now is that, you know, this guy is good enough to either... You know, get a decent loan move, better. It's in the Premier League or, or high enough in the Championship, um, or perhaps abroad. Um, I mean, a small, tiny part of me would love to see Liverpool sell Allison and just go all in and kill her just for the the crack. Um, but I mean, he does look the real deal. Um, and I think you know, as each game goes by, uh, you know, his calmness with the ball, his his distribution is fantastic, um, his shot stopping ability as well is is, is very. Allison like nearly in that you know he just kind of springs up and 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 gets those kind of close range saves over the bar. Um, and if you know if you're looking at um opinion from around you know likes of Twitter and 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 the internet in general, it does seem to be that you know this guy is the real deal regardless of, of whether he's at Liverpool or not. And I mean, I was thinking today, you know, if he was an English player doing this at Liverpool and i think the same would apply whether he was at Chelsea um at Arsenal i suppose we've seen about Ramsdale this season you know he's probably catapulted himself into into the number one short. but i think there would be a, a kind of a growing um call for him to be involved in the english setup and obviously there'd be a, a huge clamour to get his name And I, like i mean if he was english i wouldn't be surprised if you know newcastle were keen to to spend 20 or 30 million on him, whatever the, the going rate is, and, and get him over as a, as a homegrown player. I mean, that's that's the kind of level we've seen from him in his in his few games so far.
2: Yeah, I think what's really helped him kind of burst into the consciousness a little bit is that he had two relatively big games on television in a really short space of time. So he was in goal for the, the Leicester game in the Carabao Cup, and then he obviously had to fill in for Allison in the league game against Chelsea. And so people saw him. So I, I think you're absolutely right uh, we as Irish fans have been very attuned to him for a while, and then people who pay attention to Liverpool would have seen him in the Carabao Cup over the last couple of years, and and in, in kind of little cameos as being a pretty reliable now second choice after after Adrian's struggles. Uh, I think what's helped him now get gain more traction and get spoken about so much is those two games that he played in really kind of short uh, in, in short succession together. Um, and he's growing as you said and in confidence every game he is very clearly studying alisson because his ma- like his mannerisms everything about him the way he pawed that shot away with the mason mount in the chelsea game i mean we've seen alisson do it dozens and dozens of times um, i think he's actually in an interesting enough space now because he's 23 so he's not a kid he's not gavin bazunu for whom a move to a league one side is 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 fine and perfectly normal at 19 he's 23 he's he's an adult and he's played relatively little football uh, the problem that, that I see is that he could stay uh, as being Liverpool's number two, get a, a decent matter in the games, uh, learn loads from Alisson and the coaching staff and be within some sort of a shout in a couple of years, potentially, to be a successor. Or he could go out on loan now in the short term and impress, like you said, bottom, bottom half of the Premier League, top half of the Championship might nearly be my preference purely because... The last thing I think we want is, uh, uh, from a Liverpool or Ireland point of view, is for him to get peppered with a load of shots and have to deal with hoofing the ball. Like He's playing in a very specific style at the minute that suits him in terms of that distribution that you mentioned. So maybe aside towards the top of the, top of the, of the championship the you're playing a bit of football or somebody abroad. He could go, he could impress, but we've seen with someone like Dean Henderson, who did exactly that, came back to Manchester United expect, and all of a sudden, because he's had a season or two of proper adult football at the top level, being a number two is actually a bit of a step down now, but dislodging somebody like De Gea, or in Keller's case, Allison, is much easier said than done. And that doesn't mean that he couldn't leave and go elsewhere as well, but I suppose it depends on his priorities. I think he's in a tricky situation um, because, like like I said, he's not a child. He's 23 now, so it should be, hopefully, a case where he's playing more regular football. Um, That said, I think in, I don't know, most, like, in any other situation, I think he'd be... Ireland's number one goalkeeper, I think being second choice for Liverpool would be good enough against most other keepers other than the fact that Gavin Bezuna has played so well. So just because Bezuna is playing regularly at club level, I don't think that on its own would be enough to keep Keller out of the Ireland team. I think it's because of the way Bezuna plays. And so he's relatively unlucky there as well, Keller, in that, for for all intents and purposes, second choice for Liverpool and getting the games he is you'd imagine, would it be good enough? It's just the fact that when Bazunu got his chance, he took it with both hands, and he's really inhabited the jersey, or inhabited the jersey, I mean. So I think Kelleher's in an interesting position. He's clearly exceptionally talented. I'm delighted to have an Irish player uh, looking so strong and promising at Liverpool. The chances of uprooting Allison are very slim in the next couple of years. You're talking about potentially succeeding him in a few years, and then the question of where he might go to get experience at 23 years of age is another one. So he's in a, an interesting position, but I think what he definitely has, he has the trust of the coaches at Liverpool, he has the trust of the goalkeepers, and he has the trust of, of senior leaders like Van Dijk uh, and Henderson. So I think that helps, and I think that puts him in good stead. And he's clearly been in a really good, high-performance environment for a long time now. And I think, ultimately, that'll only benefit him and hopefully Ireland.
3: Yeah, I mean... Phil made some good points there. My concern with Kelleher is that, you know, Alisson has just turned 29 in October and Alisson himself was actually quite a late bloomer. He didn't play any yeah. league games in his first season at Rome in whatever it was, 2016 or 2017. So Alisson isn't a goalkeeper with, you know, 400 games under his belt before the age of 30, like, you know, somebody maybe like De Gea or, um, who's been around since a teenager. So, like, there's an awful lot of... Um, Petrol left in his tank I suppose for me Keller has a better chance of just Allison losing form completely which as we've seen in the past almost 12 months it's not impossible that that would be the case I mean he's certainly not as you know the wall that he used to be and he's made a, a few more mistakes with the ball at his feet but he has so much credit in the bank for you know changing the confidence that Liverpool have in a goalkeeper which you know has delivered a Champions League, has delivered a Premier League. So I would say that Kelleher definitely needs a a Dean Henderson type alone just to be playing week in, week out, just to prove that he is the talent um, that we know he is. I mean, for me, it was, Phil made the interesting point that he had two big games on TV recently. I think the Ajax game last year was the one where I really went. Jesus, this is a different type of goalkeeper than I, I thought he was. I thought he was, you know, potentially a bit kind of meek and short and didn't look like he'd filled out a few years ago, but um, he's certainly been doing a lot of work behind the scenes to, as, as you said, have that reach and stretch and that bounce that he has uh, to his shop's shot stopping ability. So he's improved so much from, you know, you think of the the Caribou cup matches against Arsenal, for example, where, you know, everything was almost going through him at that point of his career. So, I think the improvement in him has been the most phenomenal thing for me. I suppose you'd have to say he's extremely unlucky, not just to have Bazuna in front of him, but then Mark Travers coming up behind him as well. I mean, he's, you know two or three years ago at Liverpool or at Ireland as a 23-year-old putting in the performances that he is he'd probably be number one arguably at both clubs if his timing was different or both teams rather so I think he's really really unfortunate for the timing but it's great that he's getting such exposure I mean even Virgil van Dijk being asked in his interview recently you know uh, what he thought of Kelleher and was extremely complimentary but um, I think he would definitely need a loan move away this summer and um, just for a full season of of match after match, and then hope that by the time Alisson is 30, um, he can come back and make his case, really, um, as being the long-term successor at Liverpool. It's, It's not easily done. I thought Henderson would have taken over from De Gea fully last season, but that hasn't happened. So, again, you do have that risk, and then you're caught in limbo like Henderson is now, trying to force your way out of the club after signing a big contract. But, you know, not every situation is the same. So I'd be confident that Kelleher, if he did have a good season away, would be able to perhaps force his way into Liverpool's thoughts more consistently.
0: Quickly in the, on um, a player that we've kind of spoken about a lot over the last while in terms of, you know, what's his next move? And and, and we've seen Aaron Connolly you now move up to uh, Middlesbrough on loan for the rest of this season, uh, for the season, down to the Championship. Um, they're obviously knocking on the on the door of the playoffs. And it's kind of an interesting juxtaposition between Connolly, who, I mean, blew all the traps, scored that brace against Spurs, was kind of the darling of, of Brighton and Ireland for, for a little while, but it never really kind of caught fire after that. Um, and when you contrast that to Evan Ferguson, who's, um, I mean, he's 17 years old, he's, he's getting bench time at Brighton. He came off uh, the bench against West Brom at the weekend uh, and nearly scored. And I mean whether you're Irish, English, whatever your nationality, if you're 17 and you're coming on for a Premier League side, you have to kind of take note of that and I do wonder, you know, how their career trajectories are going to kind of shoot off from this because we've seen Connolly really struggle and, you know, he's going to a side now in the northeast of England who who do have promotion aspirations and there will be a fair degree and pressure on him. Um, I mean, the kind of the mood surrounding him at Brighton has been very good. Uh reading some of the comments from fans when he did leave that uh you know it felt like a, a bit of relief to them that that he was uh going somewhere else to to try and kind of start a little bit fresher. But uh in on the contrary, to see Ferguson at seventeen coming off the bench, he's a big lad. He's banging in the goals in the in the Premier League too for the for the uh reserve team. Um I mean at this rate, it, doesn't, it wouldn't be a huge surprise to see him maybe make a, a senior Aaron debut some, at some stage in uh, in 2022.
3: Yeah, I want to say nice things about a away lad, Aaron Connolly, but um, he's made it a bit difficult for us. Uh, I think what we have with Connolly is somebody who probably believed his own hype a little too early in his career, uh, especially th- those two goals against Spurs, and who's never really created an identity for himself on the back of that. Um you know, do you play him as a wide forward? He's not really a traditional number nine. He has a bit of pace, but he's quite sloppy on the ball. And I mean, even if you look at his performance in Portugal, where you had Ida, who was technically superb in the way he was holding up the ball and trying to bring everybody else into play. And every every single time it went to Connolly, he just seemed to either run into a player or play a loose pass. And, and we've seen this now for two and a half, three years. And I mean, this is a guy who's 22 in this month. So, I mean... For a forward, he should be entering the peak of his career in the next two to three years. Um, and he just seems to be dwindling and, and fading into the distance. There was a, a joke about somebody who's, you know, knows about things going on at Brighton that the only people who will miss him be the nightclubs in the city. So that would suggest that, you know, he probably has a bit of a, a lifestyle off the pitch that um isn't conducive to playing Premier League football. And then you have this strange move that he's going to Middlesbrough now. When you look at their forward options, I mean they have Sporar who's on loan from Sporting Lisbon, who's you know far more uh, of a dangerous number nine than Connolly. The, then they're trying to bring in Balogon from Arsenal, who's you know extremely highly rated and has a great record for their under-23s. And they've two or three other strikers there as well. So I don't really know where he fits in in the long-term plans for Middlesbrough. Obviously, they're trying to just load up um, as much as they can to, to throw the kitchen sink at um, getting back into the Premier League. But I find it difficult to see how this loan can be effective for him and how he can get the necessary game time and minutes in, in the next sort of five to six months. So I would, I would have liked to have seen probably a move even further down the leagues. Um, so I, 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 I struggle to see the impact he'll have um, at Middlesbrough. And then you compare that, obviously, as you were saying, to Evan Ferguson, who, you know, looked really, really mature at the weekend, almost scored and, you know... Um, seems to have all the right attributes and the personality to go with it for somebody so young so they're two quite different um, players and personalities and um, I think uh, one is on their way up for sure and in Connolly I just I don't really know where he goes from here obviously I hope the Middlesbrough loan goes well but um, judging by those who know him better than we do um, there's not a lot of hope there that uh, he's going to push on the next six months
0: First, I you bollocks, to be <laughs> this is live. Delighted to be joined by and Pofo from Ghana's Joy News. And he's also working with Optus, the analyst for this African Cup of Nations. Thanks for coming on, Auraku. Hope you're well.
1: Yeah, I'm well. Hope you're good
0: too. Yeah, enjoying the uh, the the AFCON uh, as it kicks off. It's a, a nice time of day to, to have games on... Um, And I mean, it's only been two years since the last edition of the AFCON, but it's felt like a lifetime um, between COVID taking over the world and the the two cancellations. So firstly, it was going to take place in summer 2020. And I think that was moved to January 2021. um, And then that was postponed last year uh, until this month. So uh, it must be a relief to finally see uh, action getting underway.
1: Yeah, uh, I think this... This is, uh, we call it our football heritage and uh, it comes around, you know, once every couple of years where you get to see the best African talent. And I think over the years, you know, the global attraction has increased uh, due to, you know, the, the number of African players who are playing more prominent roles in European clubs. So I think the relevance of, you know, the Africa Cup of Nations is growing wider, as you can see by the media coverage this time around a lot of European countries are very interested, a lot of scouts around for teams and all, and that's because of the display of talent that we do have. And so it's good to finally have it back and also sends a good message across, uh, you know, despite COVID-19 being around, still having the uh, capacity to organise a 2014 tournament. So, so far, it started out brilliantly, and we're just hoping for uh, the best.
0: For sure, and um just in terms of you know some of the big names obviously we have Salah and Sadio Mane um are up, right up there Aubameyang for um uh for Gabon but in terms of some of the the bigger favorites it uh, hasn't been a good start for your Ghana um but Senegal won today with uh, Sadio Mane scoring a late penalty um Algeria are obviously uh, reigning champions and they're keen to defend their title uh Cameroon are looking strong, so are morocco who Who are some of the bigger teams that you think have a chance of of going all the way
1: well I think you would have to first of have at least Algeria in there uh, defending champions and uh what's important is that they're not just coming in for the trophy this time round. they're eyeing a world record uh, of at least you know thirty seven game on beaten run. uh the desert foxes currently sit. At 34, after being beaten Ghana in a FIFA friendly just before the tournament, so they know that if they stay unbeaten in the group stages, then they're just one win or one draw away uh, from, you know, toppling Italy and becoming the new side with the highest number of consecutive games without defeat. So it's, I think it's extra motivation for them. So you cannot rule them out of the favourites. Senegal as well uh, went to all the way to the final, yet to win. The AFCON title, you get that feeling that their golden generation is fading away. Quite a number of their key members of the team would be well past 30 uh, when we play the next AFCON in Ivory Coast. Uh, so they would also try to make a push. Cameroon, just because they are hosts, and I remember they won it back in 2017. Uh, they've looked good under their new coach as well. And you know the prospect of playing in front of a home crowd could always be the real difference. And uh, Morocco, they've been the favourite for a lot uh, of people heading into this tournament due to how organised they've been as a team. And you look at, uh, it's built on a very solid defensive unit. I just conceded two goals in the past year and uh, scored 20 goals in the World Cup qualifiers and conceded just one, even without Hakim Ziyech. So they do have strength and depth uh, in that squad as well. So... I think in terms of the favourites, this will probably be it. I had Nigeria in there up until they had their own striking issues, you know, losing out on four strikers. Osemen, uh due to COVID-19, Manodernis, Uh They had this whole, you know, Buraha with uh, Watford and the Nigerian Football Association. Uh, Paulo Nwacho also uh, suffered an injury. And then Igalo was not released by his club. So losing these four powerhouses up front, I, I think... Probably dent Nigeria's chances as you know favourites heading into this tournament.
2: Uh, Raku, um, over this over last summer, um, during the Euros, we saw kind of a number of key tactical trends coming up. Kind of the 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 three at the back with the inverted uh, wing backs in particular kind of dominated that tournament, and kind of a lot of the high pressing we see in club football was translated to that tournament. Are there any particular Trends or stylistic uh, teams that you think are going to come out of Afcon? Are there any sides who play with a, a very defined uh, style, and and what do you think? What sort of style do you think will will dominate the tournament?
1: Well, so far I've seen two out of the favourites that I've mentioned went with a three back, and for Cameroon uh, they went with a very interesting shape in their first game uh, against Burkina Faso. Uh, when they won by two goals to one, uh, they also went with a, a three back, but they had one holding midfielder, two wing backs, and then they had two schemers in behind the striker. And so it wasn't, you know, the, the regular either 3 4 3 that you see or maybe a 3 5 2. It was more or less like a 3 1 4 2 1 formation. Uh, With uh, Sambo and Giza being the holding midfielder right in front of the center backs. And you would see, you know, the lateral center backs in the back three bombing forward as well. So, what that did was that they were able to gain a lot more territory in their opening game. Uh, For Morocco, uh, they also played a three back formation against uh, Ghana in their first game. And you could clearly see uh, from the possession stats and, you know, the the pass map and the territory that they did have a lot of their ball. And it was mostly in and around their defense. And that's because they play a three-back system with defenders who are very adept at playing the ball out of the back. You take a look at Roman Saiz and all that. And then they try and stretch you out wide going forward uh, with the likes of, you know, Hakimi uh, hugging the touchline and all that. So the three-back has been prominent uh, so far in the tournament. And uh, I think it will be, it'll be interesting to see I think it's going to end up being a tournament of a three-back versus a four-back because they're going to have probably half of the favorites coming in with a four-back. Uh, Senegal themselves, uh, they, they played with a 4 3 in 2019. This time around, they're going with a straight-out 4-4-2 with Sadio Mane and whichever striker that they do start. Uh, uh, Bula Di of Villarreal started today as the striker. And uh you had uh of Baymini playing on the right and then Keita Baude of Cagliari playing on the left wing. And so I think the whole idea is to allow Mane to be able to roam freer and you know give him the options of creating chances because he cannot be the reliable goal scorer if you look at his expected goals. It's been dropping in the past four seasons. However, if you look at the other side, that's his expected assist he's rising in terms of that number. So it suggests that he's becoming more of a creative player. And uh, CC who's the Senegalese coach, has realised that. So he's given him more of a free role. And we saw the impact that he had in that Zimbabwe game, yeah, creating most of uh, their big chances.
3: Oraku, well, in terms of, obviously, Salah's contribution this year, um, probably the most in-form and impressive player to be going to the African Cup of Nations is maybe George Weah when he was a Ballon d'Or winner. Um, I remember seeing the pressure that was on him uh, when he scored that late penalty against Congo in uh, 2017 for Egypt to qualify for their first World Cup in almost two decades. And just the phenomenal pressure, both his teammates and the fans and the crowd placed on him. Uh, And that's something that he's really lived up to. What's the perception of him in terms of having such a high profile, successful player? representing Africa is it's something that is seen very positively or is it seen as almost you know a threat to the other nations who want to win the tournament
1: well I think I think for for Africa it's a, it's a good sign to have you know a player with so much star power uh, coming down to play in, in such a tournament mid-season I think that what it does is that it attracts a lot more eyeballs uh, to the competition as well uh, but the, the, the could also, it also has its negatives, I think. When you have such a player with so much global attention, everyone knows that you know the whole world is going to be watching Salah play. And so, in effect, what that does to Egypt is that they have to always play a level above themselves because whichever opponents they find themselves also play a level above themselves because they know everyone is watching and they also want to impress. Case in point is 2019, Egypt... They hosted a tournament. were under pressure to win it. They met the South African side, who were quite under par during the group stages. And all of a sudden, they play the game of their lives, knocking out the hosts. So I think it goes in both ways uh, to have you know such an important player uh, to football currently to play at the Africa Cup of Nations. But for Egypt, maybe from a selfish point of view, uh, they would have preferred that their star power is a bit more spread uh, because you see him you know, being tightly marked throughout games, uh, being double marked and all that. So uh, that probably has affected his tenure at Egypt. We are yet to really see him You know, replicate his, his successes uh, with Liverpool, with the national team. And if he doesn't manage to win this AFCON or any AFCON anytime soon, it might leave a little dent in his legacy, especially uh, because if you just look back 10, 12 years ago, Egypt was so dominant on the continent, and it was all about uh, Mohamed Abutrika, uh, who really uh, led the country despite you know carrying the whole weight of uh, you know the country on his shoulder. He was able to go with that and still lead the team to the Africa Cup of Nations. I've seen a couple of comparisons between Abutrika and Salah, but you know Salah has to win an Afcon uh, to be able to you know sort of complete everything in Egypt. He is very admired in the country, but no one really. Cares what you do for Liverpool in the end. It's about what you do for your home country.
0: And that kind of brings me on to my next question, Araku. Um, I was going to ask, like, where does he stand amongst the greatest ever African players? I mean, you know, the likes of Didier Drogba and maybe Semuleto is probably considered the best. But does Salah need um, an African Cup of Nations title to his name before he kind of enters that stratosphere?
1: Yeah, I I I think so. Um, you look at someone like George Weah maybe because he has a, a Ballon d'Or and uh, you know the the impact that he had on African football especially within that time frame. Uh, you look at Samuel Eto. He he did it everywhere. He did it in Europe, won the Champions League with two different teams. Uh, he won the AFCON and he's actually the top scorer of uh, you know the tournament, uh, highest scorer in history. And so he has very, very good numbers backing him. Uh, so at the end of the day, if you want to be called the best player on the continent, you need to show it when the whole continent comes together. And no matter you know, how well he does for Liverpool and the number of goals that he scored for Liverpool, you know, if he came from a low-profile country, then people may be more considerate. But he's coming uh, from a country, Egypt, where they've won the Africa Cup of Nations for uh, a record seven times. And so they do have pedigree, they do have history, and they do have a lot of expectations. So yes, I do believe that he has to win the Africa Cup of Nations, especially just to back everything that he's done at Liverpool. Otherwise, you can't make the case that he is doing well in that Liverpool system. And if you take him out, is he really that much of a great player. That is he extraordinary? Because what really tells that you're extraordinary is that if they take you out of different systems, you're still able to you know, show your impact and your leadership. Uh, you look at Samuerto, he's the perfect example for that as well. So yes, Mohamed Salah has to win an Africa Cup of Nations, so do something really extraordinary with his national team. I think he's up there, but maybe to go a tier higher than that, he would have to uh, win the trophy maybe this year or next year.
2: Oraku, oh, and um, we talk about these players, um, Sadio Mane, Koulibaly, Mo Salah, some of the biggest players in the world at some of Europe's biggest clubs. Um, but there's been this sense that the, that the Cup of Nations has been looked at as less than by some European fans. You only have to look at the reaction on social media any time those rumours over the last couple of months surfaced that the competition was going to be cancelled or postponed again. And you saw how happy a lot of these fans were that their players weren't going to be taken away from their clubs. And you, you, you could never imagine such a reaction to uh, to a European Championship being cancelled. People wouldn't react so happily. Do you think that there's uh, what do you think there's that in particular as to why European fans look at Afcon the way they do? do you think it's just kind of a lack of of um, of, of experience and knowledge of of these teams and players uh, and do you think there's anything that can be done to help bridge that gap and, and and for people to look at afcon in the same way they look at the euros or is it just about them actually taking the time to watch the games and understanding the level that's there
1: well, yeah, I, th- I think it's, it's, a, it's a combination of factors, and people do speak out of, um, excuse me to say, quite, you know, ignorance, because if you do not know something, you know, you cannot really defend it. People cannot speak to the quality of the Africa Cup of Nations if it's not accessible to them, and I think we've seen good strides with, you know, Sky Sports broadcasting it this time around, uh, in England as well, in the UK, sorry, and... Uh, I think that's a good step, but of course, it would it would take a lot more uh, combined a lot more of combined effort uh, to be able to truly raise the Afcon to the level that it, it deserves to be. I think it's it's a fantastic tournament. You could you could see from the opening ceremony what it meant to the people. Very colourful, and look, Africa is a country where football is is a lifestyle, is a religion, is a culture. People do believe in football. Look, football has it has had the power to you know solve issues here on the continent it's been able to stop a civil war it's been able to put an end to hunger it's been able to bring countries together and so when a tournament as such is being played it goes beyond you know just the 24 uh 22 players on the pitch uh, playing the match at that time and there is a lot more significance attached you look at the the social benefits the economical benefits and all that so I think it's, it, it deserves to be celebrated. But, yeah, as I said, a lot more effort has to be put in place in terms of, you know, putting it out there and making people really see uh, how talented some of these these players are. I, I thought CAF could have done better in terms of, you know, standing by the tournament and uh, uh, defending it, especially in the face of adversity when, you know, the European Club Association were so adamant that uh, they didn't want clubs to release their players midway through the season. In the end, CAF showed a weakened stance by, by allowing you know countries uh, not to have their players up until January 3rd, uh, which I think was a big indictment to the whole association because essentially you're losing the fuel of a tournament if Ghana had about some, just seven, eight players in camp with one week left to play to the tournament. They only got their key players back with like four days left to their first game. And that that isn't ideal for a country that, you know, traveled all the way to Qatar uh, to book hotels and training facilities only for a quarter of their team to show up because CAF in the last minute said that players could be released late. So I, I think CAF could have done better. And I think that in the long term, if the beautiful football of Africa is put out there, people would grow to appreciate it more. And it would be able to penetrate boundaries and celebrate it as it should be.
2: I think it's undeniable, Araku, that the, that Africa's influence on global football has has been growing a lot, and probably in the last kind of fifteen years or so, that generation of players—Samuel Eto, Drogba, the Toure brothers, uh, Michael Essien and so on—who really kind of dominated European football, and that's mm. carried through to people like Mane and Salah, like we've spoken of, and 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 now it's it's very typical to see the bigger teams in European competition have at least one or two African players as really key key players in their squads. Why do you think that same um, that same draw of talent hasn't happened on the coaching side as of yet? We see loads of African players make the breakthrough to the highest echelon of of European football. It's not something we've seen on the coaching or managerial side. Do you think there's anything in particular, any particular reason for that, or is it just going to be a matter of time and it might be a slower process than was the case for players?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think yeah, it's, it's it's going to take it's going to take time uh, because the look at the, the coaching, you know, territory. And I, I think it's different Different expectation, different rules apply, you know, when you're a coach. It's, it's a lot more difficult being spotted as a coach than a player. And I say this because if player X leads Algeria or leads, let's say, um, no, let me not use Algeria, Algeria is a favourite. So let me say player X leads Gambia. Uh, to their first AFCON title, Uh, in their first ever appearance, everyone is going to be talking about Player X. And in the end, Player X is going to end up getting a big European move. I think it's just more of how football is viewed. People in general don't really appreciate coaches. And even you, you look at Algeria's very long unbeaten run and how impressive they've been. People barely attribute any of the success to Belmadi. It's always down to you know they've had a good group of players. We had Marres, uh, they've had Benacer, they've had Belali, they have Buneja, and you barely hear you know coaches being credited. So I think it's just more of how the sport is viewed. So it's much it's much more yeah. difficult. It's much more difficult for you know coaches to break through, and that that's just the nature of the sport. I think it also applies to Europe as well. But definitely, if coaches are more consistent in the game, you would expect them to uh, you know be able to climb their ways to European football. And of course, don't don't forget that the way Africans see football, the philosophies that coaches have here may not be necessarily appreciated in Europe, and so it might be. Extremely difficult uh, to be able to, you know, for them to be able to replicate that. Players can be molded to play in another system, but coaches always want to stick with their philosophy.
3: Oraku, well, we have an interesting situation in the fact that we have a, an Irish-born player uh, playing in the African Cup of Nations, and in Pico Lopez who. Not only was he born in Dublin, but he's played his entire football career uh, for the League of Ireland. And he was finally called up by Cape Verde in, uh, a couple of years ago and made his senior debut uh, at the age of 27 and played quite well actually yesterday in their back three. What has been the perception of him uh, declaring for Cape Verde and is what such a unique situation?
1: Well, he, he actually, you know, played for Ireland under 19 and up until... You know, two years ago, a lot of Cape didn't know that he was eligible uh, to play for them. Uh, (laughs) But, yeah, I think they realized later on that Lopez, uh, although he was born in Ireland, uh, he was born to, uh, you know, a Cape father. And he was eligible to play for their country and essentially uh, made his debut in 2019 in a win against Togo in a friendly. And, you know, despite... Uh, having a handful of, you know, matches. He ended up playing, I think, a couple of AFCON qualifiers as well. But it's interesting the nature of his call-up. And uh, that's because he actually nearly missed out on it. Uh, he, He had a message from the coach on LinkedIn about months earlier, before the tournament, about his invite. And he ignored the message on LinkedIn because it didn't, you know... like. I'm sure he's probably not used to that. And call-ups are probably, you know, sent to either the team manager or via email. And, you know, he got another prompt from the coach nine months later. And uh, he ended up translate. He had to actually translate the message uh, to be able to understand that, oh, this is an invite uh, for, uh, you know, to, to play for KVED and actually feature in the Africa Cup of Nations much later on. So it's an interesting story uh for uh, Robert Pico uh, Lopez but yeah i think he's been he's been fantastic so far kid they have a and I, I think is an interesting history because they came into uh you know the africa cup of nations in 2013 uh as newbies a small island everyone just loved their story and in their first ever tournament they went on beating in the group stage and they met my country Ghana in the quarterfinals, where I felt they they outplayed Ghana and I think they played about they outshot Ghana they had about eight shots our goalkeeper on the day Fatal Daouda I think put po- the best goalkeeping performance we've seen in an Afghan game in about maybe the last 10 years or so and Ghana ended up winning that game probably due to experience they came back in 2015 still unbeaten in the group stages. This time they went out just by goal difference, And they started in a good note again. And uh, yesterday I saw well, beaten 10-man Ethiopia. And so I, I think he's in a good country. Not very high expectations, but they're a very small group of players uh, with some from the diaspora as well. And uh, I, I think that they are they are one to watch. Interestingly, their group opponents, that's the host country, Cameroon, met them twice in 2021, and they couldn't beat them. Did you know, no, and Cape Verde won 3-1. So with a win in their, in their bag and facing a familiar opposition that they do enjoy playing against, their chances of reaching the round of 16 look really high uh, with uh, Robert Lopez at the moment.
0: It's a fantastic story, and it's an interesting connection between Ireland and Africa, and um oraku I'm, I'm not sure if you're aware but Ireland had um its first uh, african born international this year in um Ogbeni uh who was born in Nigeria and he's building himself a, a very strong career for Ireland with a, with five caps already so it is to nice to see uh the connection um between Ireland and and Africa uh, especially with uh, Pico Lopez representing uh in the African Cup of Nations um finally just to finish off obviously we we we've talked about a lot of the big teams um, are you willing to, to pin your colours to the mast and, 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 and pick a, a winner out of uh, the first couple of the games so far?
1: Um, as in a winner of the overall competition, who I think is going yeah. to win? Um, that, that, that's difficult. Uh, <laughs> but using, using a bit of history, I'm quite confident Algeria would, would find some unfortunate circumstance and probably be knocked down later. Um I think there will be a new winner. I still think it might come from a North African country. So I'm I'm torn between Egypt and Morocco. But I, I, I would just go with Morocco because
2: I think I think they have
1: they have a good a good foundation to build on. I think that defense defenses win you tournaments and they have a good one. And so uh, they w- they should be able to get some goals uh, from a very stacked attack as well. So I think they're the most complete team heading into this one. Uh, it, it would have been Algeria, but I just feel that there's this little of case where since 2010, no one can defend the title.
0: And, uh, and so I'll go with Morocco. Very good. Auraku thanks a million for joining us this evening.
1: Thank you too.